Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Child by Pip Valentine and T. Morris. Hanging by her fingertips from a balcony was not the situation Verity Fitzroy's father would have hoped his daughter to be in. She knew that and was a little sorry, knowing that he would have been disappointed. He'd taught Verity about the importance of three points of contact when climbing walls, the proper way of dispatching vipers, and the most efficient method of riding for speed. She learned such etiquette long before most girls were taught how to curl their hair. Yes, he would have been horrified at her current predicament. With a tiny gasp between clenched teeth, she locked her eyes shut hard and tried not to imagine the stonework giving way fractionally and dropping her to the cobblestones three stories beneath, trying to push in the back of her mind the odd comfort that tempted her. If she let go, they would finally be together. The reality was, hanging three stories above the pavement, such surrender would anger him even more. He would have been proud of her earning a living on the streets of London that didn't involve taking her clothes off. He would have been proud of her surviving what was a paltry 15 years in this world. Her surrender, however, would not stand, not even in the afterlife. Papa, she muttered, I made a promise, I know, but I miss you. She screwed her eyes even tighter, fighting back tears that formed there. I'm scared. Then her eyes flicked open. Right then, she thought. I've had my tears now. Time to get myself out of this sticky wicket. Mustering all the strength in her arms, Verity swung her lower body until it collided with the main part of the house. Her boots scrambled against the brickwork and finally she had some luck. The brick of this particular three-story apartment building was rather rotten and both toes found the third point of contact. She felt relief wash over her as the strain on her shoulders lessened. Still, she felt rather like a spider, with her body hanging wedged between the overhang of the balcony and the wall itself. The itsy-bitsy spider climbed up the wall to spout. She had sung that to the twins this morning. Jeremy and Jonathan were peas in a pod, wise beyond their years, and still they allowed her to mother them just a little. It was sweet of them, really. Sweet if she didn't know they carried tiny daggers on their person and swore like sailors. As she clung there, Verity listened for sounds that would signal the intruders into the room she'd been robbing or moving on. It was going to be a close call if her arms and legs could hold out. Clouds overhead were gathering. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Not bloody likely, she hissed, tightening her handhold on the building. She had broken into the room at the boarding house with the intention of robbing it, only to be disturbed by someone else intent on doing the very same thing occupant was a very popular man it seemed. These newcomers were in there now, talking rather intently, but she couldn't quite make out what they were saying. For now, Verity remained suspended in a summer night on London town, hearing her own heartbeat in her ears and contemplating just what had gotten her into this predicament. It was simple really. It was Harrison Thorne's fault.
early morning in Kensington. The problem with Agent Thorne was that he could ask anything of Verity. Hopefully he didn't know that and couldn't read it on her face. Verity sat at one end of the table, staring at the rather blurry photograph of their mark. At the other end was a silent Henry. They often acted like the gang's mother and father, simply because of their age. She 15, he nearly 17. Verity was, however, the only one that made any effort with their home. She attempted to make their little square of Kensington their own, a glass of violets and a cup by the window, a few brightly coloured images on the wall, and a repaired sideboard stacked with clean and tidy but mismatched dishes. As she glanced out of the corner of her eye, she hoped Agent Thor noticed that. He was smiling slightly, standing by the door, and letting his eyes rest on the children sitting very still at the table. Verity shifted a bit and glanced at Henry. Unlike the charming agent, Henry could really be so disagreeable. In fact, he was in the process of being so right now. His frown was as thick as a winter storm, but then the appearance of the handsome government agent had this effect. Verity cleared her throat in embarrassment. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, Mr Thorne, but Henry is always cantankerous before he's eaten. The eldest of their gang, Henry, sometimes took his role a little too seriously. His dark eyes fixed on hers for a moment, glaring out from under a thatch of disarrayed black hair. Just saying, Verity, and it sounds like Mr Thorne's problem here could be handled by some other folk. The other children glanced between them, not nervously, but more with the keen interest of spectators at a tennis match at Wimbledon. Verity bit the inside of her cheek, lest she snap back. They were the eldest, and it wouldn't do to get into a fight with him. That was the thing Henry liked to do most of all. Fight. It's a small matter, she said evenly, and even we lowly servants of the Empire have to look out for its welfare. Mr Thorne tilted his head. Modesty does not become you, Miss Fitzroy. While I am a man of the world, I cannot find one quarter of things you are able to in the streets of London. When Clayton was at his hotel in the West End, I was on more than familiar territory. But now... He shook his head. He was embarrassed. I lost him in the fog and shadows of London. I need your eyes. Thorne motioned to Verity, Henry, and the rest of the children. All of them. Colin snatched a piece of bread and stuffed it into his mouth. It's no bother, Henry, he chimed in, in a slightly muffled fashion. We can easily find out where this geezer is hiding, especially with one leg. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway. He may seem harmless, but don't let that fool you, Mr Thorne said, motioning to the photograph underneath her fingertips. Arthur Clayton is working for some dangerous men. You must take great care not to be seen. The children nodded solemnly, but underneath the table nudged each other. Despite everything, they did love a good chase. Also being paid by Mr Thorne kept them warm, dry and out of the workhouse. The less thievery they had to do, the less chance they had of being arrested. Verity very much liked not being arrested. Another fact she kept to herself was that the Ministry had resources, resources that she could use in her own personal mission. The further they got in good with them, the better. Thinking about the whole dreadful mess of her childhood made her head hurt. No, it wasn't thinking that was doing that. Something else entirely. The girl shook her head, but like all the other times before, the clicking wouldn't stop. Her eyes darted to the strange signet ring the agent wore on his right index finger. Something about it clattered about in the back of her brain. If she concentrated a little harder, she'd be able to deduce what it was and what... Verity? Harrison Thorne was looking at her very strangely, and she would hate him to discern her little secret. Even her fellow urchins didn't know the strange workings of her mind. 
Yes, she said softly, shooting a glance at Henry to cut off any further protests. I think we can help you with whatever you need. We are a democracy, Henry interjected, and rose to his feet, looking around at his fellows. The majority rules. So, who says we should take on this job? Every child's hand shot up, except the eldest of them. Henry rolled his eyes. Democracy was apparently not entirely all he wished for. Remember, Verity reminded him, that Mr Thorne helped us find this place and keeps us safe. Even Henry couldn't argue with that. The streets of London were dangerous for everyone, but most especially children. Thanks to Harrison Thorne, they had the safety of their bolt hole. An old mansion owned by the Ministry, but only rarely used as a safe house. Mr Thorne had shown them a number of secret passages that led to concealed rooms. For the last two years it had been their home, and not a nicer or safer place for orphaned children could be found in any part of Kensington. All of them took great pains that the only adult to ever know they lived there was Mr Thorne. I don't like how he calls us the Ministry's Eyes of London, Henry muttered under his breath. I think it's a rubbish name. We're not a blimmin' penny dreadful, and we don't belong to no ministry. It's all right to belong to something, Verity commented, feeling her own slow-burning anger rise to the surface. Besides, we can use the coin. I can see that you're in a bad mood today, Henry. Mr Thorne's deep blue eyes gleamed as he interrupted. She shifted in her seat again. The agent made her feel very strange and sent her thoughts winging to other places where they should not have been. It was most certainly nowhere near pursuing her family's killers or finding her beloved father's collection of antiquities. Realising this, she leapt to her feet. Oh, don't mind, Henry. We'll find what you want us to. Of that I have no doubt. You know how to reach me. Agent Thorne tipped his hat and exited through the concealed staircase. You heard the man, Verity snapped. Let's go find this Clayton gent. If he suspects the Ministry is after him, he'll be heading for the lowest bolt hole. Children, privileged or impoverished, would have thrown a fit being ordered about like that. But her little group would never question a command from her or Henry. They had only survived this long on the street by listening to them. Quickly the children were on their feet, sliding on jackets, hats and pocketing little devices and knick-knacks that gave them a profession. Watching these urchins carry out preliminary checks of their technological creations gave her a tiny, vain smile. She had made most of them herself and trained the children in proper care of their arsenal. Modern men of science would have dismissed her compatriots, and even she had her doubts when they first gathered. Happily, her gang had proven her wrong. Henry came up behind her as she was packing a collection of devices that might come in handy into her jacket and trousers. I don't like how he orders us about like we're a pack of hounds he can set on a bleeding fox. Verity glared at him. Would you prefer Jonathan and Jeremy Preston to work for an adult gang, or maybe Liam would be happy as a Clankerton's tester or a chimney sweep? Would you see Emma, some dirty old man's plaything? The workhouse is always an option, of course. Henry swallowed and stared abruptly down at his feet. I thought not, she continued primly. Now let's go and make an honest coin. The streets of Kensington were well-to-do, but, like most of London, a street in either direction could lead a person to a different world. Poor, middle-class, prostitute or doctor, they all rubbed shoulders here. Without needing to consult, the urchins set off to their own favourite haunts in the reeking, deadly city. Henry headed into the East End, where he had distant family members and a reach deep and wide. Jonathan and Jeremy went to the West End, where they mingled with the various children who held horses and ran errands for theatre-goers and actors, when they had coin to spend. Christopher was kind enough to let the doe-eyed Emma tag along with him as he made for Westminster. That left Verity looking down into the cheeky grins of Liam and Colin. So, where do we start, boys? She knew if she let them run off by themselves, not a lot would be achieved, except for maybe a few lifted purses. 
The youngest boys were the easiest to be distracted. Liam tilted his head. The ditch. Yeah, plenty of dosses there, Colin chimed in. Of all the places. Are you sure? Verity asked with a little dread. However, they knew the city far more intimately than she did. The boys nodded solemnly, and so that was how it had to be. They caught a ride on the back of a bus, running up alongside as it chuffed away from its stop and hauling themselves onto the rear. It was not the fastest mode of travel, nor the safest if the conductor caught them. Perched like sparrows very near the back wheel, Verity and the boys took in the sights. To keep Liam and Colin mollified, she fished out some toffee she'd acquired two days before and gave it to them. They passed plenty of fellow urchins. Some even waved or called hello. However, the three of them were on ministry business, and so Verity held tight to the boys' sleeves, at least they'd make a run for it. The looks they shot her were not exactly delighted. The boys motioned with their heads, and they jumped down as their bus turned a corner. Verity straightened up, squinting through the dust of the afternoon, taking in the less-than-desirable Shoreditch. Verity allowed herself to be led down an alleyway by the boys, who were almost giggling. How they loved to keep her on edge. One of the difficulties they faced was that in London there was a definite surplus of one-legged men. Wars and industrial accidents had in fact made them as common as dust. When Liam and Colm finally allowed her to stop, a slow smile spread over Verity's face. They were standing across the road from Lady Bouquet's Hospital for War Veterans. The newly painted sign, clean windows and smells of food proclaimed that inside could be found a hero's welcome, as well as a hot dinner and warm clothing. Verity chewed her lip and observed for a moment as a group of three well-dressed ladies went in. She knew the type, privileged, looking to do good works in the hopes that it would make them better people or perhaps justify their social shortcomings. Some did it out of appearance, others were genuinely kind-hearted. It reminded her distastefully, however, of the workhouse. We did good right, truth? Colin asked, tugging slightly on her sleeve. She smiled down at him. The boys liked to seem all smart calling her that, showing that they knew what her name meant in Latin, even if she had told them it. You did, lads. Should have thought of it myself. She attempted to brush any dirt off her half-cloak and trousers. Now you stay here and keep watch. They both grumbled a little, but they didn't need telling how much attention two small boys in a place like this would draw. They retreated into the shadows of the alleyway and Verity quickly crossed the road. She slipped in with a gaggle of other ladies, carrying in a large bundle of clothing. They were all too busy being pleased with their charity to notice one extra female among them. She and the charitable woman were soon marching into a large room, housing the shattered remains of Britain's warriors. While the prim and proper ladies did little to hide their disdain, Verity reminded herself sternly that these men had fought for the Empire. However, it was hard looking at them. Despite her years on the street, these broken souls were pathetic to see. Their wounds were not just physical, their eyes, still and dead as stones. As the boys had guessed, one-legged men were in abundance here. The lucky ones had articulated prosthetics of varying ages, engineering and effectiveness. The unlucky ones had mere wooden pegs where once limbs had been. They clattered and stumped their way around the hall, which was full of stretcher beds. It could not have been very much different from what they'd been used to in the army, but it was certainly better than the streets. Verity's gaze darted around the room, looking for the one man Agent Harrison Thorne was after. None stood out as being particularly clean or better fed than the others. What was needed was a distraction so she could sort the wheat from the chaff. She dipped into her pocket and felt around. She didn't need to see the objects in there to know where the, what they were. She knew every one of them by touch. A set of lockpicks she'd stolen from a member of the elephant gang, a spool of razor wire and a hundred other little objects. Her fingers closed on the tiny oval shape of Mickey. 
A slow smile spread on Verity's lips. Hiding him behind her back, she carefully wound the key and dropped the little clockwork rat onto the floor. Genteel ladies, come for a little charitable work, were not immune to Mickey's particular charm. This was no toy for a pet or a child, but an articulated rat that ran on articulated feet, with a mechanical body covered in a pelt that made it look all too real. Verity had also made her automated rodent rather aggressive. It scuttled across the floor, letting out a high-pitched squeal as it drew close to objects. Objects like feet. In a few moments, the room was full of horrified ladies dancing around screaming. Many were pulling up their skirts. Some of those they'd been helping in turn tried to help the women. Veterans now lashed out at rats with their prosthetic and otherwise legs. In the chaos, Verity slipped into the office. She glanced at the clock and focused on its internal workings, making a mental connection between it and Mickey. Her rat's clockwork would soon enough reach their second sequence and send him scuttling for shelter. Up until then, she would have the time necessary to get done what she wanted. Her eyes scanned the hospital director's desk. Everyone in power was always ready to make lists. It seemed it was the only way for them to feel important at all. A brief stint in a workhouse had made Verity deeply distrustful of lists and large books they were kept in, but they could be useful at times like this. Only two men had come in in the last week. One old, one young. From Agent Thorne's description, she knew this wasn't going to be some old codger. He wasn't as simple as to sign in under his own name, but thanks to the blessed finickertiness of the establishment, they sometimes took something they called identifying features. Perhaps the odd person tried to pull one over on the charity. It happened, even in the most worthy of places. Young then, she whispered, and red-headed. Her finger traced the name. It was not Arthur Clayton, but John Marlett, listed as mobile and fit for work duty. In her head she heard a quick click, as if the gears in both the clock and Mickey were striking together in perfect precision. Verity squeaked a glance out the door before exiting silently. Mickey had disappeared, as his sequence commanded, and now the laudable ladies were once more turned to their task, but not without a few hairs out of place and nursing caps askew. Verity took up a pile of newly knitted socks from the table and began arranging them in a deep basket. Giving a quick glance around her, she hastily pulled from her pocket a small tin whistle to her lips. Though no discernible sound came out when she blew it, Mickey soon appeared from a gap in the wall. The rat quickly scuttled to her foot and then went still. Good boy, she whispered to him, before replacing him back in her pocket. Passing the socks out to grateful veterans gave her an excuse to move in amongst the beds, remain useful and keep an eye out for her prey. She spotted him easily enough, straight from the picture that Harrison had given her. He was a young man, red-haired, his other leg a second-hand McTeague automaton device. He was pushing a broom around in a very sullen manner. Unlike those who had come off the street, he looked less than impressed to be here. As Agent Thorne had insinuated, his investigations had forced him out of a very nice West End hotel and brought him here. Verity's eyes fixed on his prosthetic leg. For the second time that day she could hear a soft cacophony no one else was privy to. This time, however, the strange echoing tick in her ear seemed out of synchronisation with the workings of the leg. There was a strange syncopated pattern working against the anticipated rattle of the leg's flex and bend. She had never heard anything like that before. Verity knew Agent Thorne would want her to find him, alert him of Arthur Clayton, his alias and his location, but that the longer she listened to the odd rhythm of Clayton's leg, the more her skin tingled. 
Mechanical things turned her into quite the magpie, and if she really admitted to her namesake, Verity was curious. With Agent Thorne's warning ringing in her ears alongside the odd syncopation of Clayton's leg, Verity circled the room, watching and waiting. The tick-tock and clatter of little gears did not leave her head as she watched the man. The longer she did so, the more he exuded a nervous disposition often found on the streets of London. He kept pulling out his pocket watch and glancing at it. Verity had just finished fluffing one decorated soldier's pillow when she heard the pattern shift and pitch. She looked across the room just in time to see Clayton walking out into the growing twilight. Luckily, he wasn't able to move terribly fast. Verity kept her distance discreet, even when Colm and Liam ran over to her, a sticky bag of gobstoppers and toffee still in the younger lad's hand. Keeping an eye on the man hobbling up the street, she whispered, Liam, come with me. Colin, go back to the doss and let them know I've found the gent. I'll send word on his location. Colin's reply was a nod, and then he disappeared into an alley. Liam dropped back, becoming another shadow amongst lengthening shadows, but far enough from Verity to be unnoticed, close enough to lend a hand, just in case. The chase was on, as it was. The man's prosthetic kept him much slower than other prey, so Verity and Liam only needed to keep him in line of sight. Five streets over, he turned into an alley, far too quickly for either child's liking. Verity ducked behind a flower cellar, while Liam stopped before a window, feigning interest in whatever was within. She peered around her cart, catching them up looking up and down the street, before rounding a corner and disappearing into a boarding house. Gesturing Liam over, she wrapped around around him. Take a message to the dead drop. Give Agent Thorne this address. Liam stared up at her, his expression hard. Why don't we both do it? Don't think I'm silly enough to go in, she replied smartly. I won't do any such thing, but we need to keep an eye on him. If he leaves whatever reason, I'll leave Mickey within sight so you can follow him to wherever we stop. Verity turned Liam around. Now hop to it. For once he didn't give her any lip, but scarpered off and melted into the growing darkness. It had been a long day, but Verity knew she might have to stay here a while. She found a corner of the alley where the shadows were darkest and wedged herself in behind some abandoned crates from nearby costermongers. She had just got herself comfortable when a light appeared above her head. The crates seemed solid enough, so silently she crept up the tower of wood until she was on level with the window. She could just make out Arthur Clayton, but she almost fell when she caught reflection in the mirror above the fireplace. Clayton was talking to another man, a man Verity knew. Uncle Octavius, she whispered. Her father's best friend, who had been with them in Africa, Spain and even Egypt, standing there before Clayton, clearly as when she had last seen him as a child. Tall, brooding, with a long line of a scar on his left cheek. She'd been there when he got it. She'd also been there when her father had got the news that Uncle Octavius had been killed on the Nile. Yet now there he was, in much better health than his dearly departed friend Thomas, her father. When she looked at her Uncle Octavius in the mirror, though, there was something different. There was no smile, no mirth. He was cold. There was something else Verity noticed, the rattle of Clayton's prosthetic leg. There was nothing peculiar about it now. Verity was about to ease back into her hiding place when Uncle Octavius and Clayton switched places in what she could only assume was a spirited conversation. When she saw her lost friend, the rat-a-tat-tat she originally heard from Clayton was now centred around him. Prosthetic legs were wonderful devices that could contain armaments, maps or cavities used to smuggle items you might not want certain government agencies to find in your possession. 
Whoever this red-headed, one-legged man was, he must be some kind of courier. Whatever he'd had in his leg was now in her uncle's possession. She watched her uncle gesture sharply at where Clayton stood, more words that sounded like distant shouts. She could just make out Clayton pointing at Uncle Octavius. Then everything grew still again. He limped around him and left through the doorway. Verity gave the drainpipe close to her a tug to test its surety. Then she wrapped her fingers around it and leaned forward to risk a wider view. Uncle Octavius's attention was at the door. He pulled what appeared to be a call for the butler, but the man appeared looked far too menacing for such a refined position. Her eyes grew wide as she watched Uncle Octavius produce from a small table what she recognised from the streets as a garrote. He handed it to the imposing man, nodded, and watched him leave. Octavius then went to the mirror, straightened his tie, and then retired deeper into the boarding house. The off-balance rattle now filled her ears. She felt it as clearly as her own heartbeat. It rose up through the house to the top story. Her eyes fixed on the spot. She swallowed hard, gripped harder the drainpipe, and made up her mind. Boarding houses were easier to break into since there was always lots of comings and goings. No one would react to an odd rattling from the drainpipes outside as she worked her way up to the next ledge. The clockwork curiosity seemingly passed on to a thought-dead uncle now took precedence over Agent Thorne's original charge. Hugging the ledge as closely as she could, Verity pulled herself up to the darkened window. Thankfully, the housekeeper had tended to the windows well as she gave the flame a slow tug. The pain slid easily up, and now she was inside the boarding house. The odd ticking was easy to trap as she crept quietly from the darkened room, through a brightly lit corridor, up another flight of stairs, to another room in the far corner of the building. She leaned into the door and held her breath. Uncle Octavius, apparently, had stepped out for the night. Quick as a flash, she'd whisked out her lockpicks and soon found herself in the room where the syncopated rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat was so clear it made the hair on the back of her neck stand up. The room on quick examination was as bare and desolate as one could imagine in a boarding house. Why was her uncle here? How was her uncle alive? Her questions, coupled with the steady noise, made it difficult to concentrate. It also made it difficult to hear the scrape of another lockpick at the door. All the warning Verity had was the sound of the cylinder tumbling, disengaging. There was no wardrobe to hide in. The bed was so low to the floor she couldn't swiftly stuff herself under it. And that was how she found herself in the here and now, hanging precariously on the ledge of a dead uncle's rented apartment. However, her arms were weakening, and she was terrified if she inched her feet out of the toehold she had, then her arms would give way entirely. She heard the intruders moving around upstairs, and imagined that whoever was looking for Uncle Octavius and the device would not be so happy to see her. The ticking was deep in her head, and it made everything far more difficult. Either way, she was going to end up on the cobblestones now or later. Her mind raced through the possibilities of the things she had in her pockets, but again, one hand down meant less ability to hold on, and that didn't seem like an option. Above, she heard a shout, furniture being thrown about, a pop that sounded awfully like a gunshot, and then something like a scream. Her imagination was running faster than a march here, but she still couldn't decide if this was a good sign or not. Just at that moment, her right arm cramped and buckled. Luckily, that was also the exact moment when a hand like iron locked on her upper arm. Let go! Harrison Thorne barked. He was hanging from the balcony with his legs wedged in the ironwork, but he had a good grip on her. Never had a man looked more like an angel. She smiled and with uttermost faith obeyed. He pulled her in and gave her a rough hug that knocked the remaining breath out of her. It was only a moment before he pushed her back just as roughly. 
What do you think you were doing, young lady? Did you not hear a word I told you? He was angry and outraged, and in an instant Verity went from relieved to embarrassed. I I'm sorry, she stuttered, completely at a loss for an explanation. I, I just thought... He waved an admonishing finger at her. No, Verity Fitzroy, it is perfectly clear that you didn't think at all. Was a typical attitude from an adult. They always thought a child's head was full of fluff. In this instance, however, she was not about to disabuse him of the notion. I'm sorry, she repeated. But I think everyone was looking for something. By way of explanation, she scrambled back into the room. There was blood on the floor, and the furniture was scattered everywhere. Still, she ignored that. Instead, walking around it, she tilted her head like a magpie. Verity? Her rescuer trailed in her wake, but she held up a hand for silence. Remarkably, he gave it to her. Locating the point where the sound was the loudest, Verity dropped to her knees and ran her fingers over the floorboards. One stood fractionally prouder than the other. With a small knife from her pocket, she was able to prise it open. Beneath was the device responsible for the ticking that only she could hear. It was a circular device, no bigger than a pocket watch, yet every tiny gear was visible and moving. It was light in her hand, far lighter than it had any right to be. What is that? Agent Thorne crouched down and leaned over her shoulder. I don't know, she whispered, but I recognise it. It was in my father's collection. What is it doing here, then? She turned it over in her hands, mesmerised by its perpetual motion that seemed to have no winding mechanism. I have no idea, she murmured. That's why I came in here. I recognised my uncle. I thought he was dead. And then I... I heard this. Harrison Thorne sank back on his heels. Did he know what it was? She shook her head, wrapping her fingers around it tightly. As far as I'm aware, he didn't. It was something that my father found on a dig in Cyprus. I thought it was lost when our house was burned to the ground, and yet now, here's my uncle with it. Something's going on. Her voice cracked on the last few words, as the emotion she had thought she had a grasp on welled up. Luckily, the ministry agent made no move to take it from her. If he had, even being who he was, she would have fought him. Quickly, she wrapped the device, but so far he had no idea it had anything to do with Clayton in her handkerchief, and secreted it in her pocket, and best to get it out of the way and out of his mind. And she looked up at him and smiled. Oh, by the way, I, I have found your Mr. Clayton for you. He's in a return serviceman's establishment not far from here. Yes, thank you. We found his body not far from here. He'd been strangled and thrown into an alleyway. That's why Liam brought me here. Uh, then you don't need us anymore. She hoped she sounded casual about the whole thing. Locating Clayton was, after all, the only thing Agent Thorne had actually asked her to do. The device was not part of this, and Uncle Octavius she would keep quiet about, too. This was her life, her quest, and the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences did not need to know about it. Agent Harrison Thorne trusted her, for he slipped the agreed sum in her palm. Now you have done your part. This is where your job ends, and mine begins once more. As they walked downstairs together, she pondered just how wrong the agent from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences was being. It was, in fact, the end of his mission and the start of something far more personal for her. The strange little device's tick-tock was beginning to feel comfortable like her own heartbeat returned. She felt father would have been very pleased about that.
For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at TheGearHeart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.